and welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Helen and I'm one of the leadership team here at WBC. This week is week four of a four-part series on the wonderful book of Ruth. Shall we start with prayer first? Dear Lord, thank you for the technology that allows us to share your word together in this way. We pray that you would bless us all with insight and deeper understanding of your character and your love for us through our study of Ruth. Amen. So let's open the book of Ruth at chapter four and um, dive straight in. Boaz went straight to the public square and took his place there. Before long, the closer relative, the one mentioned earlier by Boaz, strolled by. Step aside, old friend, said Boaz. Take a seat. The man sat down. Boaz then gathered ten of the town elders together and said, Sit down here with us. We've got some business to take care of. And they sat down. Boaz then said to his relative, The piece of property that belonged to our relative Elimelech is being sold by his widow Naomi, who has just returned from the country of Moab. I thought you ought to know about it. Buy it back if you want. You can make it official in the presence of those sitting here and before the town elders. You have first redeemer rights. If you don't want it, tell me so, and I'll know where I stand. You're the first in line to do this, and I'm next after you. He said, I'll buy it. Then Boaz added, you realise, don't you, that when you buy the field from Naomi, you also get Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of our dead relative, along with the redeemer responsibility to have children with her and carry on the family inheritance. Then the relative said, oh, I can't do that. I'd jeopardise my own family's inheritance. You go ahead and buy it. You can have my rights. I can't do it. In the olden times in Israel, this is how they handled official business regarding matters of property and inheritance. A man would take off his shoe and give it to the other person. This was the same as an official seal or a personal signature in Israel. So when Boaz's redeemer relative said, go ahead and buy it, he signed the deal by pulling off his shoe. Boaz then addressed the elders and all the people in the town square that day. You are my witnesses today that I have brought from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech and Kilion and Marlon, including responsibility for Ruth, the foreigner, the widow of Marlon. I take her as my wife and keep the name of the deceased alive along with his inheritance. The memory and reputation of the deceased is not going to disappear out of this family or from his hometown. To all of this, you are my witnesses this very day. All the people in the town square that day, backing up the elders, said, Yes, we are witnesses. May God make this woman who is coming into your household like Rachel and Leah, the two women who built the family of Israel. May God make you a pillar in Ephrathah and famous in Bethlehem. With the children God gives you from this young woman, may your family rival the family of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah. Boaz married Ruth. She became his wife. Boaz slept with her. By God's gracious gift, she conceived and had a son. The town woman said to Naomi, Blessed be God. He didn't leave you without family to carry on your life. May this baby grow up to be famous in Israel. He'll make you young again. He'll take care of you in old age, and this daughter-in-law 
who has brought him into the world and loves you so much, why she's worth more to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and held him in her arms, cuddling him, cooing over him, waiting on him hand and foot. The neighbourhood woman started calling him Naomi's baby boy, but his real name was Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. This is the family tree of Perez. Perez had Hezron. Hezron had Ram. Ram had Abimadad. Abimadad had Nashon. Nashon had Salmon. Salmon had Boaz. Boaz had Obed. Obed had Jesse. And Jesse had David. Well, that's a short chapter with a lot to say, isn't it? Actually, for a short book, Ruth packs the narrative with goodies all round, doesn't it? It begins with Naomi and Elimelech trying to do the best for their sons. Then it moves on to Naomi, feeling bereft and facing life without her husbands and sons, still wanting what's best for her daughters-in-law, until at the end of this final chapter we see Naomi fulfilled, surrounded once again by a loving family and holding a very special baby who has given her back what she thought was irrevocably lost. When I began my re research in readiness for this talk, I was a little bit overwhelmed by the number of lessons different authors felt they were able to draw from this one small chapter, and I began to think we might need a whole sermon series on its own, or at the very least, the longest YouTube talk on the WBC channel. Don't worry, this talk is neither though I did spend an interesting few days looking at the story of Boaz's role of kinsman-redeemer as an analogy for Jesus as our kinsman-redeemer, and you might wish to disappear down that same rabbit hole. Ultimately, I felt this wasn't the point I was supposed to focus on, although I am going to begin by using a little of that research to help me expand and explain the story I do want to focus on as we look at this chapter together. I want to talk about the tradition of Leverite marriage, and to look at why it plays such an important role in Naomi's story. Back in 4th century BC Bethlehem, and sadly in, still in some countries today, women were the property and responsibility of the men they were related to. They began life dependent on their father or brothers if he died, then left home to marry and become dependent on their husbands or sons if they were widowed. A woman without a male relative was in a very precarious position indeed. She had very few options for earning a living opening to, open to her and very little choice over what distant male relatives may decide should happen to her or any land their husband had owned. Land and the family name was what mattered to the patriarchy of the time. Land was a way of ensuring each family had enough food to eat, whilst the continuation of the family name ensured those who came before would never be forgotten and thus never really die. It was considered that a man was not absolutely dead whilst his name was carried on, and this is where the Leverite union comes in. If a woman of no childbearing age was left a widow with no children, there would be no one to carry on her husband's name, and so he would, in that culture, be in danger of an absolute death. So Jewish custom allowed for a Leverite marriage, normally to her brother-in-law, but in this case to the closest willing male heir. Naomi, of course, was too old to bear children and so could never have had the safety net of a Leverite marriage. But because both her sons and her husband had died, it was her husband, Elimelech's name, 
that was in danger of being forgotten and his land that could easily end up in another family's hands, leaving her utterly destitute. And this is where Ruth comes in and the method by which God showed his grace to both Naomi and Ruth becomes clear. And, and he gave Naomi and Elimelech's story an unexpected happy ending. Under the terms of the Leverite marriage, any children born to Ruth would carry Marlon's name and therefore Elimelech's name. And any land Ruth brought into the marriage would belong to these children and therefore would remain in Elimelech's family and both women would have a man to be responsible for them again. Ruth, her husband, and Naomi, her grandson. By the 4th century BC, Leverite marriage was no longer a common tradition, and as Boaz was a distant relative to Elimelech, he would never have been under any compulsion to marry Ruth, and neither was the unnamed closer relative, although it is worth noting that had he agreed to marry Ruth, she would have had no choice in the matter, which some scholars feel is why Boaz presented the offer of land in quite the way he did. He loved Ruth and wanted to marry her, regardless of the fact she was a Moabite. He was using the Leverite marriage tradition of, as a way of ensuring there were no objections to a prominent member of the Jewish community marrying a Gentile. I would say this, the plan worked spectacularly. Everybody got a happy ending and Ruth earned her place in the genealogy of Jesus. So what is the story of Naomi Elimelech? Ruth and Boaz have to say to us some 2,500 years later. Well, these were ordinary women living ordinary lives, supporting each other through the hardships of life and trusting God would work everything out in the end. I think that the Ashbury Bible commentary says it far better than I could. The recurring emphasis is Yahweh's unobtrusive activity in the lives of devout but otherwise ordinary individuals. Through their faithfulness and humble loyalty, he gradually accomplishes his purpose. In this way, Ruth illustrates biblical and theological synergism. Far from cancelling humankind's free will, God's sovereignty is demonstrated and accomplished through the willful faithfulness of his servants. And Candle and Morris wrap it up even more succinctly in an almost paraphrase of Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. They put it like this. The implication throughout the book of Ruth is that God is watching over his people and that he brings to pass what is good. This book is a book about God. In a way, Naomi's story is our story too. We all have stories about times in our lives when things seemed really dark and we weren't sure how we were going to get through how things were ever going to get better, but we prayed and trusted God. And although we couldn't see step by step how things were improving, somehow we can look back and see God working things out for our good and the good of others too. This is a photograph of uh, my daughter Annette. It was taken almost a year to the day before she died of cancer. When she died, I simply had no idea how to keep going. I was alone because my marriage had broken down. I didn't have a job because taking care of a child with cancer alone is a full-time job. And as you can imagine, I was in no state to get a job. I had a council house, but no way to pay the rent. 
because the day Annette died, I ceased to be eligible for any of the benefits we had been living on. I could apply for job seekers allowance, but that meant I'd have to prove I was looking for a job. I simply couldn't see how I was going to keep going. I had very, very good friends who were taking care of me, but I couldn't see any kind of future for myself. One day, things came to a head, and I sat at the top of my stairs in a full-on snotty cry fest, and in the middle of my despair I prayed, Lord, I cannot do this. You're going to have to take charge because I just don't know what to do. It was heartfelt and I meant every word. I didn't wake up in Barbie land with everything magically sorted out. I woke up in the same place with the very same problems. In fact, things got worse. I really felt like God was telling me to give up my flat, so I did. I made myself homeless, meaning I wasn't eligible for any help at all. I slept on friends' couches, then I stayed with a lady I barely knew from church. She encouraged me to apply for a job I would never have looked at if it hadn't been for her. Before I had Annette, I was a nanny, and I really wanted to go back to being a nanny, but you can see that that might have been a bit tricky. However, I got this job, which was as a live-in nanny with an amazing Christian family, who encouraged and enabled me to do my teaching degree, which led me to getting a teaching job in Southend, where I met Philip, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now that's a very potted version of a part of my story, just as the book of Ruth is a potted version of Naomi's story, with many tough times glazed over to reveal the bigger picture. But sometimes it's good to stand back and look at that bigger picture and see what God is doing in your life and through your life. God let me, led me from that snotty despair to a contented new life. And on the way, he has used and will continue to use me to work out his purpose here on earth, just as he used Naomi and Ruth, and just as he is using you. Shall we pray? Father God, thank you that you not only did you send Jesus to be our kinsman redeemer, but you also take a keen interest in the whole of our lives, weaving the threads of our separate existences together to form your beautiful plan for us all. Please help us to keep our hearts open and our minds attentive to your calling so that we might play the part you have for us in the big story of your love for the world, whatever that part may be. Amen. Okay, so Mike likes to give us three questions and I have three questions for you too. However, I do have to confess that I'm cheating a little bit because some of them have more than one part. So question one is, who are your closest friends? The ones you can turn to in a crisis. Those you know will have your back no matter what your circumstances are. Question two, what are your safety nets? How secure are they? And do they get in the way of your reliance on God? Question three. Not really so much a question as a bit of a challenge. Look back on your own life story. Can you see the bigger picture? Can you see the way God has brought you through tough times? Can you share that story with your discipleship group, either verbally or creatively, via a story, a poem or a picture? Are you brave enough? Thanks very much for watching. God bless.
Goodbye.